Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Labby McCann. Well, hello there. It's been a long time, and for that, I apologize. It's been about five weeks, and my producer, Will, he was busy working or something. Making money, as if that's important. Anyways, as always, I encourage all of you to interact with us on the social media stuff. For Twitter, it's at M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M, at McCannum. Please give us some feedback, follow us, ask some questions. We've been trying to post interesting articles. We inadvertently outed some Russian bots who are posing as Me Too victims. I'm not really sure what to do with that information. But regardless... We value and look forward to your feedback, especially if it's positive. Do we have a show for you? We've got the second part of Nadia Anwar's interview. But wait, there's more. We're continuing that story on Les Moonves and hearing about seven more accusations. What a terrible person. But right now, Will wants to apologize for his inexcusable delay. I didn't say I was going to apologize, Larry. I was just going to explain what I've been doing. I've been working with this artist, Tala Madani, sound designing some of her video projects. She has an art show that just opened in New York City at the 303 Gallery on November 1st, and it's going to be open until December 15th. Please check it out. She has a series of visual art projects that I did all the sound for. You know, I was expecting more groveling and less self-promotion, but that does sound kind of interesting. Tell me about this Tala Madani. Well, she was a lot of fun to work with. Her projects actually seem to intersect with some of the topics we discuss on this podcast. A lot of them have to do with men doing strange things. They seem to be driven into performing these almost compulsive acts. Phallic symbols are very frequent in at least the video projects I worked on. I think she explores cultures clashing, males and females clashing, and different ideas of what that means in our world. Okay, you're right. It is a bit related. But what about the people who have been waiting five weeks for some more clarity? I am sorry that we haven't had a fixed schedule. I know that can be frustrating. It's both a time commitment and a creative challenge to put these episodes together. They're very involved. It may not sound like it, but a lot of thought and effort goes into them. So you're encouraging people to maybe motivate you by clicking that tip jar. I have no illusions that this is going to be a lucrative endeavor. You don't? Then why are we doing this? I I thought that the purpose of this was to try to create a platform and make some change. Shouldn't we want to reward people who are doing a good thing? I hope so, but I think our society as a whole has trouble supporting, I hesitate to say artistic pursuits, but more creative endeavors. We seem to have trouble placing value on something that's more intangible than a good or a service. I don't know about you, but I think we're pretty good at providing a service. I agree, but I also think we could do a better job of involving more people and being a little more consistent in our schedule. Going forward, I want to have a fixed schedule, but I also want to hear from you, the listener. How much clarity is too much clarity? How much clarity is too little clarity? Please let us know. We'll create a poll, and again, on Twitter, you can reach me at M-A-C-C-A. Double N U M. You can also email me at LarryMcCannum at gmail.com. 
Let's build a community together. Next up, the second part of my interview with Nadia Anwar. There was this thread going on in this theater that I'm a part of. One guy asked, how come there's not more people of color that are directors of these sketch comedy groups that are a part of this theater? You want to be directed by someone who understands you. A white person can, but there has to be some more diversity so we don't feel so alone. And I'm not a white person hater. Obviously not. My boyfriend's white. I love all people. Another thing that we were discussing is so you don't feel afraid to fail because failing is how you learn. I work with so many brown people and we talk about this, how we have to be the best in what we put out. Everything I do has to be perfect. And that's so much pressure, which is why so many of us don't put a lot of stuff out because we're worried if this is not received well, no one's going to work with us now. Whereas white people put shit out all the time and they're not afraid to. Nobody should be afraid to. It's great. They're working. They're putting their stuff out there. It doesn't have to be perfect all the time. I think that's a misconception. Don't be afraid to fail. Let's put our shit out there. Even if it sucks, we're doing something. We're trying to break barriers and pave the way for other people of color. It's too true. And I would even make a distinction between white men and white women, where I think white men are given the most opportunities to fail. And one of our first guests on this podcast was talking about the difference between the output of a male director and a female director. And it's pretty staggering. The amount of time between movies for even the top-tier female directors is about twice the period of even nominal male directors. It's just baffling for me. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast. I think it was Mark Maron's podcast. And this woman was saying how, of course, they're going to go with the male because the male has done more projects, so he knows what he's doing. The execs, they're not taking a risk hiring him again because they know he got it done. So the woman just keeps getting cast aside because it's like, well, she has two projects. This male director has like 15 or 20. I know he can do the work. I don't know if she can. She's only gotten two under her belt. She's only gotten two under her belt because she's only been offered or had the opportunity to do two. Opportunity is huge. I don't get the opportunities that a white person gets. People look at me like, oh, man, she's been out in L.A. for nine years. What the hell is she doing? How come she's not on TV more? How come she's not rich yet? How come she's not a famous star? Because <laughs> I don't get offered or the opportunity for it. And yeah, it sounds like I'm victimizing myself and I sound like a victim. But look at the numbers. I'm not trying to be a victim. And that's why this year and the last, I started to take things into my own hands. And hey, I should have done that sooner. Because now these have been the best two years of my career yet. I want to show other brown girls that they can play other parts, that we can be the lead. That movie that just came out on Netflix, To All the Boys I've Ever Loved, Asian lead, gorgeous. Movie was amazing. Fun to watch. Asian lead. It is possible. Yeah, the dad's white because, of course, Hollywood can't fathom except for Crazy Rich Asians, which was, what, 25 years after Joy Luck Club? So it's just stuff like that where it's like opportunity but you have to create your own, which is even more pressure for us. And that's okay. That makes you stronger. You just have to keep kicking ass. Sorry, I sound like a motivational book. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of them. 
That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it's the only thing that keeps me sane out here. I can't afford therapy yet, but when I do, man, it's going to be epic. <laughs> I agree. I, I'm considering it myself. Yeah, Ongoing it, debate. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> I also want to say, because I've been wanting to say this out loud, and I'm going to say it on my Instagram page too, and all my 900 followers are going to listen to it. What's your name for oh, Instagram? Aquarius Nadu. Aquarius N-A-D-U. Make fun of me for liking horoscopes. It's all good. I don't care. Nadu, actually Nadu, but I say Nadu for you American folk. Nadu is my nickname since I was a little girl. It's short for Nadia, and they made Nadu. I want to share, too, that there is another reason I feel like there aren't more brown people in this industry, and it's because we all act like every man for himself. And I'm going to call it out there. I'm going to put it out there because it's so true. And for brown people who are going to hate hearing this, oh, well. If we started collaborating more with each other, we would be way more ahead than we are right now. The constant battling each other and I'm better than this girl or I'm better than that girl or I'm more talented than this person gets us nowhere. That's what I'm also starting to realize too. And this year I'm collaborating with way more people of brown descent. I say brown because I don't want to generalize Indian and Pakistani because there are Indian and there's Pakistani. Make an effort to collaborate with each other because the more we collaborate with each other, the more we take over. I know there are other brown groups that are collaborating, but I think we all need to do it more. So I'm not discounting the people that are already doing it, but let's do it more. And it's a wonderful mentality. We got to lift all of us up. Mm -hmm. It's not every man for himself. It's not, oh, I'm going to be the first brown person to do this. Why does that even matter? When I think what you're touching on is roles should not be specific to any group. If a person is wonderful in that role, they should have that opportunity. Yes. And if they're telling a story that it, it's not believable with a person of color, then maybe don't write that freaking story anymore. Because guess what? We've seen it already. Hey, I know that we've made progress. I know that we have shows like This Is Us and like Blackish and stuff like that. But we can have way more. When it's not just the leads, the directors, it's also the writers. Mm -hmm. So you have primarily white writers. And of course, they're going to tend to write towards right. white what roles. They what they know. Yeah. I recently got into writing the past two years. And I didn't have any idea or intention to become a writer. I didn't even think that was necessary. But I realized that it's more necessary than performing. <laughs> writing your own stories, writing our stories from our perspective, because otherwise, you're right. Why would the other person understand where our stories are coming from? They wouldn't. When worst case, they try to write that story and totally mishandle it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not going to blame someone for that because they tried. And I'm glad that they tried writing a story for a person of color. But yeah, get a person of color on there. Get that brown person on there. So you get that right. What I'd like to loop back to is... Acting is very challenging. Right, right, right. right. And you're yeah. making yourself very vulnerable. How do you personally deal with that adversity? Man, I, uh, I haven't been great at doing that. But just these past two years, I've been like really, really becoming good at it. Because it's easy to play the victim, which, you know, even the way I sound right now, I'm, I still am playing the victim. But I'm not because I, I know now that you just have to keep working and you have to find a reason why. A lot of the times I didn't really emphasize to myself, why am I doing this? I would just be like, okay, all right, I got an audition. I become very crazy about the audition. I work on it day in, day out. I take off work. I'm like, I'm going to book this. I put 
copious amounts of pressure on myself to the point where it's a disaster when it happens, even if it's a self-tape, because <laughs> you just overthink it. And because you think this is the last opportunity you're going to get for another year. Recently, I don't have reps because of this, because I just decided nobody's going to get it. The reps are not going to get it. There's just so many people that I've been rep by that are like, dye her back to black, stop dyeing it blonde, look more Indian, be more this way. But I can't keep faking that. I know it's acting, and so you're acting, but I'm acting in a way that they are fulfilling that stereotype of Indian people or brown people. I don't want to fulfill that stereotype. I want to be something different. So finding a reason why has kept me from just quitting and owning that reason and constantly performing I was in an audition class and that's all I was doing. And audition classes are not fun. It's like going to the gym. So it's not fun, but it's necessary. This past two years, I've been almost a year and a half, I've been with this color collective group. It's a sketch comedy group and it's all diverse. And it was started by Roy Shockley, who's an African-American. And he decided this is it because he's not the stereotypical black guy. So it's like, I'm going to play this part and I can do that. And so he got all these people together that are all, we're like a melting pot. And we decided that we're going to make fun sketches and they don't always have to be stereotypical. Some of them are stereotypical. I do play an Indian ant, but I'm making fun of playing that part. I'm not doing it because I'm getting paid and I have to do this Indian accent. That makes you feel like, ugh, I have to do that. Whereas, oh, I get to play my aunt in this? Hell yeah. My aunt's hilarious. All my aunts are. And I love making fun of them. And it's fun. Having fun in this industry is important because acting is so fun. And if you get to do it, do it because it's just fun. So that's what's kept me going is the Color Collective Sketch Comedy Group. We travel to San Francisco to perform and just writing sketches, performing with different groups of people. When you keep doing it and you keep trying, there's no reason to fail. There's none. If you're just constantly worried about booking it, you're never going to book it. And that's what I've learned. I've learned that you just have to try your best and know why you're doing it. I, this is a funny movie. It's so old. My Father the Hero. I don't care if I'm dating myself. I'm not worried about being 32. Some people get so ageist and it's like, who gives a shit? But My Father the Hero with Katherine Heigl. And I remember watching that and being like, oh, I love that. Like, I wish I could be that girl. I wish I was like a little princess and this guy wanted me. And I know so many brown girls that can relate to this. When we were in school, it's like, oh, no guy would ever give us a shot because, oh, that's the Indian girl. She probably smells. For me, I want to do this. And what motivates me is to make other brown guys and girls feel like they're cool and they are awesome and they should be loved. And what we watch and what we listen to when we're growing up, because TV and film is a huge part of our lives, that is representative of what we see. So if we see, even with Asian men, if they constantly see themselves as nerds or whatever, being a nerd is cool. But if they constantly see that, they don't feel sexy. Feeling sexy is a huge part of being a human. You should feel wanted and you should feel like you're loved and that people want to be around you. So, you know, that's what keeps me going. And yeah, this industry is very hard, but you just have to keep going. That's all. And having a good foundation, having a good partner, having good friends, taking care of your health, taking care of yourself, not constantly grinding. I was constantly grinding and then being exhausted all the time. And that doesn't get you anywhere either. I love everything you said there. And there's so much I want to unpack. One thing that keeps coming to my mind is, like you're saying, the damage of media 
on a young mind. And I remember hearing that story about the young black girls who were told to pick a doll. And they almost exclusively would pick the little white blonde doll. And when asked why, they'd say, because she's pretty. The other one is ugly. Mm -hmm. And it blew my mind. That's something that is very hard for me to understand. This is a great topic because Indian people, they consider dark skin ugly. We have a product in India called Fair and Lovely, and it lightens your skin. I think it's like skin bleaching. Growing up, you could have the weirdest features, which everyone's beautiful in their own way, but you could have unique features, and the family would say to that person, oh, she's fair, so she's gorgeous. And it didn't matter what the darker skin looked like or anything. It was, oh, the lighter skin is much fairer. She's going to get married soon because she's just a hot commodity. That's an every Asian country. And it's sad because they put white skin on a pedestal. And when I was little, I heard that. And so I always thought my skin was ugly. (laughs) And that's crazy. You should never feel like you're ugly or you shouldn't feel like God messed you up. (laughs) Especially for something like pigmentation, which says nothing about you as a person. Right. My understanding is there's a lot of cultures who share that same kind of bias towards fair skin. And one theory is that it has to do with people who are out in the the field doing manual labor. So you're like more of a worker, so you're not as appealing. What? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it's terrible. But that's what we've been taught. I'm going to call my mom out again. She will constantly say that my middle sister's the most pretty, which is a sick thing to say anyway. But that's, I mean, that's all she knows. I'm not talking crap about her, but that's all she knows. Because that's probably what her mom did. But she would say my middle sister's the prettiest because she's the fairest. And it's like, are you insane? (laughs) Why would you even say that? This goes back to the industry because they will cast the lighter skinned person. They think visually people are drawn to that more. That's why I respect Issa Rae so much. And I respect that show. And I respect her for creating that show. We need more people like her. I mean, she's gorgeous and she has darker skin. I love that shout out. Issa Rae is truly a visionary right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that she has that opportunity. Like you're saying, she's both beautiful, but also not conforming to Western beauty standards. Her hair is distinctly her. I'm, again, speaking from the outside, but I know within the African-American community, hair is a huge issue. Yeah, it's very sad. I've been starting to see more and more African-American women let their natural hair grow, and it's like so amazing to watch and I just feel so empowered by them I mean we're all so divided it's crazy but hopefully we all come back together and it is a learning experience that's all I can say this is going to be an unpopular opinion but personally I think white people have about 500 years tops that's a little optimistic before we're all assimilated into more of a everyone's mixed up and the concept of white doesn't exist anymore unless they get into space Don't let white people into space. (laughs) But personally, I kind of look forward to that. I think the world would be a better place because there seems to be so much conflict solely circling around concepts of white. Yeah, it's so weird because even when I was little, I was like, I wish I was white. I wish I was white. And then in high school, I was like, I wish I was black. I wish I was black because you wish you're something that at least is more of than what you are. I mean, there wasn't a lot of brown people where I was growing up. There was and there wasn't. But in my school, there was more black or white people. We were a melting pot. And I think white people are afraid of that, which I don't know why. (laughs) 
But I think people don't want to like lose their cultures. But what is white culture? Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's what my confusion is with that whole argument. Well, and I'm primarily of Scottish descent. I did at one point, but I don't identify as Scottish. And I've been asked what it's like to be Irish after saying I'm of Scottish descent. And I got to say that kind of bothered me a little bit. Oh yeah, right. But ultimately, it is kind of trivial. I mean, no, they all have different cultures, and I would be offended if I said I was Irish and then somebody was like, "What's it like to be Scottish?" I feel like educated people of color don't do that, or I don't know who did that to you, but for me, it's like we all have different places we come from, and they all have their own culture and vibe. I think that that white people are just scared of being washed away, but I mean, there's always going to be white people. You don't have to fight for that. I don't know. I think that there's going to become a point. You think that we're all going to blend together, really? Unless white people continue to segregate. Well, I think that it doesn't have to be segregation. I have white friends who marry white friends. I hope they're not racist. I don't think everyone is. I'm just saying that when the population of the world, yeah, which is already skewing away yeah. from white people, yeah, and white people having fewer and fewer children, yeah, I think there's an inevitable decline. Unless you start doing a program to raise only white people, which I do not endorse. No. This podcast is not behind that. <laughs> that sounds like the Holocaust a little. Just a little bit. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. We are a melting pot, and it, it's a beautiful melting pot. And I think that's okay. I think that we should embrace that. I think that's what makes the world such a wonderful place. Yeah. Not our differences, but how we can share things. Yeah. Yes. Let's share each other's experiences, not diminish them or talk down to them or act down against them. Just because I'm a different race or culture than you doesn't mean that I'm less than you. I remember when Trump got elected, I happened to be in Manchester because my friend was having her bachelorette party. When we were leaving, we were at the Dunkin' Donuts, and it was two days after he got elected, and there was this old white man in a starter jacket. Who the hell even wears those anymore? And he looked at me like he was going to kill me. <laughs> and we were, were like, we got to get out of here because he's going to kill me. That's terrifying. Yeah. Where's this Manchester? Uh, Manchester, Boston, right? I wasn't sure if you meant England. Oh, my bad. Yeah, in Boston. In Boston, not the most uh, yeah. culturally accepting place. But there is a lot of different races there. But yeah, why are they not more accepting? I don't understand. If you ask me, too many Irish people, but uh, <laughs> that's a little Scottish bias. And the Scots are honestly not the most accepting people either, uh, unfortunately. Uh, that's so sad. It's like, why? Let's all just love each other. Let's spread love. I know that sounds hippie-ish, but it's also a very easy concept to grasp. What we like to say on the show is that seems to be the easiest route. Yeah. You're doing less work if you love, as opposed to hating everything and getting upset about things. Oh, yeah. I am amazed that we have elected such a president. And now this whole thing with Kavanaugh is happening and the freedom of choice of our bodies are being taken away is insanity. I don't know. It might take 500 years. I wish it would only take 50 that more people of color were in the government and more liberal people were in the government. Absolutely. I think we are seeing some transition, but I think what you cautioned about the Emmys is also true, where there's a short-term knee-jerk reaction, but it's more or less paying lip service. Yeah, and that's so demeaning. You gave us some awards last year, so now it's okay. 
I like period pieces, but we don't need to keep doing them. Right now, let's have different stories. I agree. And if you are doing a period piece, find a way to make it somewhat inclusive. Yeah, there are some that are inclusive. It's not that hard. I think in the UK, I mean, there is prejudice and, and there is racism there, but I do see more diversity in their projects. A lot of them come here and they're people of color. I think Riz Ahmed is from there, but I'm not sure. But I do know that the girl from a good place, she's Indian, but she comes from the UK too. So I don't know. They are a little bit more accepting over there, but there is racism. I know that. I've heard that. Absolutely. They may be better in some respect, but there still is yeah. a ton of racism there. When I think what you're talking about with awards is important too, where if you're awarding all the white people these high accolades, of course they're going to get more opportunity from them. Yes, it is so true. Those people that won all those awards are going to definitely get more opportunities. So the cycle continues. I think it's that, very depressing. Unfortunately. <laughs> and the only real answer is start yeah. giving awards to more diverse group of people. Yeah. Or at the very least, allow the selection of what's up for an award to be more diverse. If everything's being channeled through white networks, yeah. it just skewed every single step of the way. Yeah. I don't know who's in charge. I'm guessing it is older white people. I relate to Atlanta. I relate to Insecure way more than I related to that Mademoiselle show. I know I'm saying the name wrong. As I said, big fan of Insecure. And Atlanta is also a tremendous show. It is. We did have our own Aziz, but that's a fine line of, yeah, he didn't break the law, but he also used his power. And I don't know what he deserves. There's no right or wrong answer, but it wasn't right what he did. We covered that in an earlier episode, and again, immensely complicated But I agree with you. I think while he didn't necessarily break a law, what he did was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Should he ever be on stage again? Should it be more than a year? Ugh, I don't know. He's already out there, so it is what it is. I think we need for him to apologize more. I know that he already apologized once, but I think he should be like, you know, what I did was really, really wrong, and I used my power, and I promise I will never do it again. One apology is not going to cut it. I think that's fair. That's my opinion, though. I'm a huge fan of his, but when this story came out, it sucks. It's easy for people to say, oh, she should have left. Where, from a woman's perspective, there are a lot of women who won't agree with this, and that's because they're freaking badass. It's like you're kind of paralyzed when you're in those positions. You're like, well, one kiss is not going to hurt. Well, he's so into me. And yeah, that sounds really sad, But when you're young and you're in that position and it's someone like Aziz, you're like, well, whatever, I'm going to... Then you kind of feel dirty later and you're like, why did I even do this? But you don't know what to feel in the moment. And the point is that you should never, ever, ever have to be in that kind of position. No one should make you feel that way. So for me, he needs to apologize more. Not just apologize once and get back on the road because fuck you. I'm not interested. I'm not going to watch you. There's hundreds and thousands of comedians that haven't acted like that. I'd rather watch them. And I think we can vote with our money and our support. It makes a difference who we're putting on. Exactly. So if we are condoning his behavior, he might just do it again because, hey, he got away with it. And I just thought he was so different. Maybe that's me being naive, but I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think he actively portrayed himself as that caring aware, sympathetic man. Yes. 
And then he also came out with this book about, I don't know if it was about sex or how to pick up women. And so it's a whole thing. I was watching a Samantha Bee episode and she was calling him out and it was funny and very true. (laughs) He wrote a book about sex or how to pick up women and be suave and look at how you were treating a woman and behaving. And then you wear a Time's Up pin. It's all contradictory and Oh, I'm so pissed off. I unfollowed Chris Rock today because he had a picture of him and Aziz. But I was like, "Mm, not my cup of tea, Chris. You're a legend, but you don't need to post a picture of Aziz. It's really hard. (laughs) Louis C.K. is someone I admired. Yeah. And he's even worse. Exactly. I mean, he's like 100 times worse. He definitely is a criminal. I want to make that abundantly clear. Yeah, yeah. He recently did a new set. So Louis C.K. is on the way back. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. I don't think he's remorseful at all. I mean, do you? Uh, Part of my problem with his excuse was that he talked about not recognizing the power differential. And he's a very smart man who dissects power differentials in his act. So it, it was immensely hard for me to even come to terms with what he was saying there. And I think with Aziz, you brought up a really good point where I think in normal relationships... It's very hard for women in a lot of situations. But when it's that coupled with, I'm getting this chance to date a celebrity. Right. Even more pressure is put on top of that. Yeah. People will be like, oh, come on. You don't want to hook up with Aziz? Come on. They have a sense of arrogance. And not every male is like that. But there's ego. And Louis C.K. had so much ego. You can even see it on his show. So for me to believe that he didn't, understand there was a power difference. I don't believe that for one second. He knew. And he knew that female comedians would die to be around him and learn from him. And he took advantage of that. And that's gross. I agree. Well, I want to give you the opportunity. Is there a topic you wanted to discuss? Oh. Ooh. Do you like shows like Blackish where they're showing their perspective and things like that? Because we do need more white people to be watching. Because right now, they just want to watch what they want to watch. It's true. I was reading one article about peak black TV. And I think we're actually in a wonderful era for that, Mm -hmm. where we've got Insecure, Blackish, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I mean, just those three alone. Yeah. There's that new show I haven't watched yet, Random Acts of Flyness on HBO. Oh, yeah. I got to watch that. I know. I saw that. Two Dope Queens have a show on HBO. So again, the scale is still heavily tilted towards white cast. Yes. But we do have some wonderful things happening. Yeah. I think that we need to hone in on what we want to be watching and how we can diversify it. I think that's our best bet. For me personally, I love the idea of crazy rich Asians. I love the all Asian cast. But for me, consumerism is not my cup of tea. I don't like the rampant capitalism that that movie's essentially celebrating. Mm, I think they did that so that They could sell movie tickets. (laughs) I agree. And I hope that opens the door. For like real, for like real story. Yeah. Yeah. Like Better Luck Tomorrow was a great movie. That came out over a decade ago. Oh, I never even seen that. Uh, I can't remember the director's first name. The last name is Lin, I believe. And he went on to do Fast and the Furious. But Mm -hmm. his first movie was great. All about Asian people in America. No one has an accent. No one's an exchange student. It's just normal life. I got to check this out. It's a good one. Yeah. I think it's powerful that you have invited me and that you are inviting women 
to speak out because that's so important too. So we need more people like you, Larry. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're far too generous. (laughs) No, I mean it. Because if we had more people like that, then there would be a sense of unity of we're all on the same page. We're all on the same side. We just want to have equality. And we just want to all feel like we belong. And yeah, it's cool to be unique and different. And it's cool to stand out. But there is also a sense of isolation that's not good for the soul. So we need to fix that. And the only way to fix that is to keep making stories about different people. From the bottom of my heart, I do appreciate that. But what I struggle with is, when do I step back? The majority of the show is intended to be a platform. Because I think it's all great that I have these opinions and I'll look at these articles. But I truly want women like you to feel comfortable and share what your perspective is. And I hope I'm achieving that. But I think ultimately... I'm excited by entirely diverse cast and crew. I think currently we're seeing more diversity among casts, which is still not good. But if you look at the crew, almost everyone's going to be white and a man. We do got a lot more women in crews now, but yeah, still predominantly white male. Everything is right now still predominantly white male, but I think we are taking baby steps. It's going to take baby steps, but we're striving towards a diverse group of of everything, I think, of politics, of movies. I think the more, like you said, the more interracial couples and the more kids that we make, (laughs) even like generations below me, they're way more accepting of each other than my generation has been. It's really cool to see. I'll talk to younger brown girls and I can see that they have had an easier time than I did. I'm happy about that. I think you don't need to step back. I think stepping back would be doing a disservice to us. I think if you continue this podcast and invite women and women of color, and I forgot, do you do men too? Uh, No men. That is one rule of this podcast. (laughs) They can call in if they want. See, but that's empowering. And I feel it's genuine. You really want to help us. And that's awesome. So do not step back. Keep doing this. I know you're a white straight male and you're leading this podcast, but you're also an ally. That's an honor. And like I said earlier, I'll try to keep fighting the good fight. Good. Is there any closing statement you'd like to make? Ooh. Stay smiling, everyone. And thank you so much, Larry, for having me on this podcast. This has been a great, great time talking to you about such empowering issues. And I hope that you continue this. And everybody, kick ass out there and keep fighting the good fight. But thank you, Nadia, for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you. Welcome to the second part of the main story concerning Les Moonves and his decades of sexual abuse. Last episode, we heard testimonies from Dina Kurgo, Janet Jones, Golden Gottlieb, Deborah Morris, and an anonymous actor who portrayed a police officer on a long-running CBS show. In that episode, I mentioned wanting to put all these allegations into chronological order, and Will dropped the ball on that. If Will had done his due diligence... Linda Silverthorne would have ended the last segment. 
and that anonymous actor would have been the second testimony in this episode. I don't know if Will's ever going to be able to make up for this transgression, but without further ado, let's hear from seven more of Les Moonves' victims. In 1990, the writer Linda Silverthorne arrived for a business meeting with Moonves at Warner Bros. at 9 in the morning. Silverthorne had recently secured a feature screenwriting credit for Beverly Hills Bratz, a comedy starring Martin Sheen, and was looking for a development deal for further writing projects. Six years earlier, when she was an assistant and he was a vice president at 20th Century Fox, Moonves had propositioned her offering to help her career, and the two had had consensual sexual encounters in his office over the course of about a month. After he discussed his wife and children during one liaison, Silverthorne said she stopped the encounters. The two had friendly interactions at industry events in the intervening years, and Silverthorne believed that she could turn to Moonves as a professional contact. Silverthorne told Farrow that in this meeting at 9 a.m., Moonves shut the door took several swigs of coffee, grabbed her, and pulled her up from the chair where she was seated. Before making conversation, he kissed me while we were standing up. Coffee was on his breath, she recalled. And then he just pulled his penis out and moved it towards her hand. Silverthorne, who was in a long-term committed relationship at the time, said she was in shock. She said that she manually manipulated him and just got it over with. Afterwards, she said, Moonves told her the studio didn't have any opportunities for her. She departed the meeting and never contacted Moonves again. It was unwelcome. It was unwanted, she said. Their encounters, six years earlier, she told Ronan, didn't allow him to just grab me and pull his penis out on me when I'm there for a legitimate business meeting at 9 o'clock. I don't know about the rest of you, but this is almost overwhelming. All these allegations show... What Moonves is doing is probably true for a lot of men in power. He and Weinstein might be especially heinous, but look how much has to come out before other women will even come forward. In this case with Silverthorne, Moonves clearly used his position of power to coerce a sexual favor that he in turn did not even reward. This next accuser also wishes to remain anonymous. Farrow writes, In 1992, a former child star who asked to be identified only by her first name, Kimberly, was introduced to Moonves by a friend who was a member of Moonves's staff and told her that Moonves could help her get back into television. At a dinner meeting that the three attended, Moonves began by asking questions about Kimberly's acting career. But when the friend went to the bathroom, Moonves turned to Kimberly and said, Let's go. Let's just go get a hotel room. Let's just do this. She was shocked. When she explained that she had a husband and a child, Moonves became angry and left. The power differential was so great, Kimberly told Farrell. I was really scared because I thought I was burning some sort of a bridge that was going to be great for me. As a child star, she said, I'd been taught that powerful people can hurt you. They can ruin you. They can ruin your career. She said that the turn from business meeting to sexual overture seemed to be well-practiced. The following accusation comes from Elena Douglas. In March of 1997, CBS cast her in a comedy called Queens. Shortly before production of the pilot episode began, 
Moonves called Douglas's manager, Melissa Prophet, and told her that he was concerned about Douglas's attitude during a reading with a co-star, Penelope Ann Miller. Prophet relayed the concern to Douglas, who was surprised and confused. The reading, in front of a group of CBS executives, had elicited uproarious laughter. Moonves, she said, had taken her by the shoulders and congratulated her. Moonves had told Prophet that he wanted to meet with Douglas alone to ensure that they were creatively aligned. Prophet apparently did not recall this conversation or setting up that meeting. So one might even call her a false prophet. When Douglas met with Moonves at his office, she began to raise concerns about the Queen's script. But Moonves, she recalled, cut her off. He interrupts me to ask me, am I single? She said. I didn't know what to say at that point. She began talking about the script, but Moonves interjected, asking to kiss her. It'll just be between you and me. Come on, you're not some nubile virgin, he allegedly said. As Douglas attempted to turn the focus back to work, Moonves, she said, grabbed her. In a millisecond, he's got one arm over me, pinning me. Moonves was violently kissing her, holding her down on the couch with her arms above her head. What it feels like to have someone hold you down. You can't breathe. You can't move. But eventually Douglas was able to get herself away from him and headed towards the door. Moonves then backed her up against the wall, pressing against her with his face close to hers. It was physically scary. She told Pharaoh, he says, we're going to keep this between you and me, right? Attempting to put him off with a joke, she replied, no, sir, we won't tell anyone that you're a good kisser. That apparently satisfied him. The following week, Moonves showed up for the first day of rehearsals for the show Queens. As soon as I saw him, I thought I was going to collapse. Everything came back to me. I was shaking. After the second rehearsal, Moonves took Douglas aside. What the fuck do you think you're doing out there? You're not even trying. Douglas took it as a reference to a failure to comply with his advances and to maintain her composure afterward. Several days into rehearsals, Moonves called Douglas at home. You make me fucking sick. You are not funny, she recalled. Moonves told her that she wouldn't get a fucking dime out of the money she was owed and that she would never work at this network again. In a statement, CBS said that Moonves acknowledges trying to kiss Douglas, but that he denies any characterization of sexual assault, intimidation, or retaliatory action, including berating her on set and personally firing her from Queens. Douglas's agent, Melissa Prophet, told Ronan Farrow that Moonves and CBS Business Affairs called her to say that Douglas would be replaced on the show and that her deal would be canceled. According to Douglas, Prophet called her and said I'd burned all my bridges at CBS, that she was firing me. Douglas also said that her agent, Patrick Whitesell, who was then at Creative Artists Agency, called later to also tell her that she was fired. I think by now, the collusion throughout the industry is starting to become crystal clear. At this point, Douglas decided to get some legal protection. She began working with an attorney named Bill Sobel. Sobel confirmed that Douglas had described the encounter with Moonves at the time, and his contemporaneous notes backed up her account. I believed Elena. What happened to her was reprehensible. So Bell then tried to help her recover some of her lost wages. Douglas had received a $50,000 advance payment for her appearance in the Queen's Pilot, but felt that she was owed the remaining $250,000. After a junior staff member 
at CBS Business Affairs told Sobel that Douglas had been fired because of her poor performance at rehearsals and that the network intended to withhold her pay. Sobel suggested that he ask Moonves about the meeting he had alone with Douglas. According to the communications and contracts reviewed by the New Yorker, the head of CBS Business Affairs, rather than the junior staffer, replied to Sabelle with a new proposition. CBS proposed that the agreement be settled out for $125,000 and then agreed to pay Douglas an additional $250,000 to appear in a new miniseries. So maybe this is why CBS has no records of settlements stemming from allegations against Moonves. Perhaps they were hidden by shady accounting practices or behind other deals like the one Douglas was offered. To corroborate some of the story and to poke holes in some of the official excuses that CBS gave, Ronan writes, Joanne Kincaid, an executive producer on the Queen's Pilot and Penelope Ann Miller's manager at the time, said that she was not consulted about Douglas's dismissal. One day, she was just not there, gone and replaced, Kincaid said. It was very unusual. I was an executive producer. There should have been an explanation. In an email, Judge Reinhold, one of Douglas's co-stars, wrote, Elena was hilariously unique in her comedy and fun to work with. We were all surprised and disappointed that she left. Farrow continues, Douglas appeared in Bella Mafia, that other show CBS offered her, and afterward, CAA resumed representing her. But she believes that the incident derailed any future career she would have had at CBS and says, I never auditioned or ever had any kind of television show deal at CBS. Next up is Jessica Pallingston. She's a writer who alleges that Moonves coerced her into performing oral sex on him when she worked as his temporary assistant in the 90s, and that after she repelled subsequent sexual advances, he became hostile, at one point calling her a cunt. It's completely disgusting, she said of the reports of Moonves' potential exit package. CBS was offering him $120 million. Jessica continues, he should take all that money and give it to an organization that helps survivors of sexual abuse. I commend Jessica for that statement, but personally... I think that Moonves shouldn't get a penny. CBS should take that money and give it to women like Pallingston, whose careers were derailed. Charity's great, but I think it's undeniable the fact that Moonves had both psychologically and professionally on all 12 of these women. Farrell writes, On her first day of work, Pallingston arrived at Moonves's suite at the Regency Hotel about 10 minutes before her appointed start time of 10 a.m. Moonves, she recalled, came to the door in a bathrobe and then departed and returned fully clothed. He sat in a large chair at one end of the suite's living room while she took another opposite him. Moonves began asking personal questions, including questions about whether she was single and her sexual orientation. He offered her wine, which Pallingston accepted, and poured himself a glass, which he drank quickly. I want to remind you this was 10 a.m. I was at work and I didn't want to be drunk she recalled. But at the same time, I wanted to behave and do what was expected of me. Then Moonves asked her for a massage. Pallingston crossed the room, and Moonves placed her hands on his neck and shoulders, briefly instructing her before telling her to sit back down. I guess I was terrible, because he said, never mind, she recalled. He was really frustrated. He said, 
Hadn't you ever given a massage to your boyfriends? And again, I think it bears repeating, this was probably the first 20 minutes of her first day of work. Moonves, appearing irritated, began asking more sexual questions. She recalled him asking if she was afraid of men, and then if she liked powerful men. Frightened and beginning to shake, she said that she did, and Moonves told her to come to him. Pallingson told Ronan, It was uncomfortable, but I was trying to act like I was tough and cool, like I could handle it all. She remembers Moonves saying, I could help you with your writing. I could help you, and if you do something nice for me, I could do something nice for you. Not only is Moonves leveraging and taking advantage of his position of power over Pallingston, but Pallingston was also simultaneously feeling social pressure to placate the desires of a powerful man. And I think that speaks to some of the systemic and social conditioning problems that our society has. Moonves, she said, then kissed her, shoving his tongue down her throat like he was trying to reach my stomach. Then he said, I want you to suck my cock. She recalled mumbling, okay, and Moonves grabbing her head and forcing it onto his penis. He kept his clothes on. He had Calvin Klein underpants. He pushed my head down hard, she said. It was very violent, very aggressive. There was real hostility in it. Eventually, she said, he told her to lie down on the couch. I was really scared and nervous. I started getting a panic attack. She tried to leave the room, and he told her to sit down. I remember sitting in the chair, shaking, and really messed up. Moonves began groping her breasts, and she said, kept saying, Come on, let's fuck. Pallingston, who has a history of anxiety and panic attacks, said that her shaking intensified so much that it became clearly visible to Moonves. I said, I can't do this. He said, okay. He didn't try to push it. She collected herself, and after her panic attack subsided, Moonves departed for a meeting. Before leaving, she said, he took my hand and shook it and said, you did a great job. What an asshole. Just to be clear, that's from me. Pallingston spent several more days working as Moonves' assistant, during which, she said, he was a little gropey, but not much. It breaks my heart to hear how a lot of this is assumed to be part of the job. It's truly terrible. The following spring, however, after she was assigned to work with Moonves again, when he made a similar trip to New York, he immediately offered her wine and began groping her breasts. His hands were on my neck, and then he started reaching down my bra, she said. Panicked, Pallingston lied and said she'd gotten engaged. I figured it was a way to get him to stop, she said. Moonves, sounding skeptical, asked whom she was marrying, and she gave a false name. By this time, I was just a little tougher, she told Ronan, and that pissed him off. Moonves grew cold as ice, hostile, nasty, she recalled, because I turned him down. During the remainder of their time working together, she said Moonves would bark orders at her, sometimes using obscenities. At one point, he had loud phone sex in front of her. The following year, she said, Moonves, then at CBS, was hostile toward Pallingston when he called the executive she was working for at Warner Bros. As she connected the phone call, she recalled, Moonves ordered her to get the executive on the line, addressing her as, You cunt. Pallingston told Ronan that her experiences with Moonves worsened a decades-long struggle with anxiety, depression, and controlling her anger. Her career in television sort of fell apart. She continued to pursue writing, eventually publishing several books, 
but abandoned her ambitions of working full-time in television. It played a number on my head, especially in terms of self-worth, professionally, she said of Moonves's behavior. Next, we'll hear about Deborah Cattay, who formerly worked as a massage therapist in Los Angeles, told Ronan that Moonves harassed her when she gave him massages at his office and home in the late 90s. Bottom line is, every time I went in there for about a year and a half to two years, he would ask me to work higher up his leg in a way that was clearly sexual, she told Farrow. On one occasion, as she drew closer to his penis, he asked her to touch it. On another, Moonves threw off the sheet covering him and exposed himself to her. She said she repeatedly told Moonves that she didn't do that kind of work and brought up his wife in the hope that it would discourage him. She said that Moonves continued to proposition her until she told him that she was attracted to women. I'm actually bisexual, she said, but I thought if I told him that, he'd leave me alone, and it worked. She called the experience very stressful, but said that she always stopped short of terminating their sessions, fearing that the fallout from embarrassing Moonves might harm her career. Kate told Ronan that her experience with Moonves caused her to decline further work on male clients and ultimately contributed to her decision to leave massage therapy. Years later, she was convicted on account of wire fraud for participating in a deceptive real estate scheme. Knowing that her criminal history might be publicized, Kate only stepped forward when she heard about Moonves' statements regarding consent. It was a weekly thing she said of Moonves's alleged sexual advances, and I said no every time. I commend Kate for stepping forward, especially when unrelated convictions might be brought up in the maelstrom of news. The next victim is the producer Christine Peters. She was an industry veteran when she first encountered Moonves in the early aughts. She had worked on movies like Rain Man and Gorillas in the Mist. She became a close friend and confidant of Sumner Redstone, the owner of Viacom, to whom she was at times romantically linked in the press. In 2006, Moonves, who had become the chairman of CBS, had dinner with Peters and Redstone to discuss his plans to launch a film studio, CBS Films, which was founded the next year. Moonves was considering executives to oversee the endeavor, and Redstone suggested Peters. Moonves seemed excited about the idea. When Moonves and Peters met at his office to discuss the prospect, Peters told Farrow she came with a detailed presentation on her business model, which focused on female audiences. I remember him being very enthusiastic, saying it made a lot of sense. She was sitting on a couch, and as she continued her pitch, he sat down uncomfortably close and said, This is really great. Then he just put a hand up my skirt. Moonves, she said, slid his hand up her thigh and touched her underwear. I was in a state of shock, Peters recalled. I expected to be taken seriously. I never in a million years saw that coming. She said that she was surprised in part because she thought her relationship with Redstone would have put Moonves on guard. I couldn't understand why he would do that in light of the situation with Sumner, she told Ronan. In the end, she decided not to tell Redstone because she worried about what the fallout might be. Like Jones, Peters told Farrell, Moonves was smart enough not to have anyone there. It was a setup. The final victim that we know of 
is Deborah Green. And I think many of you might have noticed another pattern. At least based off of these 12 accusations, Moonves seems to be specifically targeting Deborah's. Fearing for the worst, I made sure that his daughter is not named Deborah. She is not. And I also made sure that Moonves's mother is not named Deborah. Deborah Green was a freelance makeup artist, regularly working for CBS in the early aughts, when she says an encounter with Moonves reduced her work at the network. Moonves had complimented a ring on her finger, and she had mentioned that it was a gift from her boyfriend. Green told Farrell that she assumed she had made clear to Moonves that she was not interested in any sort of overture. She was further assured, she said, when Moonves began asking about her boyfriend. Then catching her off guard, he stood up, turned around, and forcibly grabbed her, kissing her hard. He stuck his tongue down my throat. It was like a forceful hold. Green recalled shoving Moonves back, shocked. He appeared dismayed and abruptly turned and left, shutting himself in an adjoining bathroom. Shortly afterward, he opened the door and flatly instructed her to pack your bags and leave. Green said she held back tears as she left the building then cried as she drove from the CBS offices to her home. For several days, Green said, she struggled with whether to report the incident. I didn't want my livelihood to be jeopardized, she said. Shortly after, she spoke to her father, who confirmed to Farrell that the two discussed the incident and the risks of filing a complaint. Green decided to remain silent, knowing that less is powerful. It's why I didn't speak out at the time, she recalled. I was a makeup artist who had no voice. She did continue to work for CBS television programs, including its soap operas, but was never hired again to work with the company's executives. And I think a lot of these stories show the dilemma that the women are put through. Do you jeopardize everything by trying to do the right thing by speaking out? Or do you remain silent? Unfortunately, in retrospect, it seems abundantly clear that Moonves is a vindictive man. And of course, it's easy for me to say, go through the immense hardship of filing a criminal investigation against one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. But I wish we lived in a world where all these women felt comfortable going to the authorities, not only for their own personal safety and career, but it might actually have an effect on their abuser. Ronan concludes by writing... Experts told me that addressing patterns of harassment at a company as large as CBS generally depends on reform at the highest levels. This sort of conduct is tied to overall climate and oftentimes to how women are seen or valued within an entire organization. Fatima Goss Graves, the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, said, And there's no question that the head of the organization sets the tone for the entire organization. For the women who have made claims against Les Moonves, his public stance as a supporter for the hashtag MeToo movement and his role in the Commission on Eliminating Sexual Harassment and Advancing Equality in the Workplace have been unnerving. Janet Jones told Farrell when she heard that he was on the commission, I thought, oh, for God's sake, he has no shame. The commission is made up of and funded by industry leaders and its members are not vetted. Elena Douglas knew people who were associated with the commission and considered telling them her story until she saw that Moonves was also a member. I don't think that the fox should be guarding the henhouse, she said. And that's a very important point. 
I also want to criticize the commission for their lack of transparency. A web search turned up no roster of members or even associates. Beyond Anita Hill, I have no idea who was a part of it or who helped form it. Everything I found was either an article about how it was being founded or how, in reaction to this article on Moonves, the commission was going to distance itself from him. That's not good. If you want to provide a safe and valuable platform, you have to be held accountable as well. I was hoping to get into what a scumbag Jeff Fager is, but I don't think we're going to have time this episode. The last thing I want to touch on is severance. This comes from Ronan Farrow's second article. In several recent high-profile cases, media companies have quickly fired figures accused of sexual harassment and withheld severance packages otherwise guaranteed by their contracts. At NBC, Matt Lauer, the former anchor of the Today Show, was fired for cause hours before harassment allegations against him were disclosed by Variety. CBS fired Charlie Rose the day after the Washington Post published claims against him. But Moonves, who many on Wall Street laud for boosting CBS's profits, occupies an unusual position of power. His current employment contract, which was reviewed by The New Yorker, lays out a number of grounds for firing him, including violating the company's sexual harassment policies. But the contract also allows him to depart of his own volition with generous compensation for a range of reasons, including any diminishment of his responsibilities or if at any time a majority of the CBS board members change. That proviso has given Moonves sway over the makeup of the board, the group now responsible for investigating him. The vast majority of board members are allied with Moonves in an ongoing legal battle between Sherry Redstone, the president of the holding company that controls Viacom and CBS, who has sought to merge the companies, and Moonves, who has resisted that effort. None of the women who made allegations about Moonves in this story were familiar with or linked to the corporate battles at CBS. The board appointed two law firms, Covington and Burling, and Debevoir and Plimpton, to investigate the allegations against Moonves. A number of individuals whom the firms have asked to interview said that they were concerned about the independence of the two firms, given the large amount of legal work they do for CBS. If you knew how much money these firms were making from the mergers and acquisitions and the business side of CBS, there's no way you'd think they're impartial. One former executive who occupied senior positions on the CBS and Viacom legal teams told Farrow, representatives for both law firms declined to comment. Golden Gottlieb, one of several women in the story who has volunteered to speak to investigators, said that she had little faith that Moonves would face meaningful consequences. He's going to get away with it, she told Farrow. But I want to be there. I'm not going to be a shadow anymore. And again, I want to thank both Farrow for his articles and all of these women for being brave enough to step forward. You're not only doing the entertainment industry a favor, you're doing the whole country and the world a favor. We need to dismantle these systems of power that allow for rampant abuse. And we need to stop meting out real consequences. Being fired. Again, I'm overjoyed that Moonves was fired. But he needs to face criminal charges. We also need to recognize that predators like Moonves enable and promote other like-minded individuals. Thank you for bearing with me. And now it's time for our sponsor. 
Are you extremely savvy with social media? Can you market to unnecessarily specific demographics? Do you enjoy doing things for personal satisfaction rather than financial compensation? Then do we have the position for you? Join the Clarity team in what we're not legally able to define as a job. Become our senior volunteer director of marketing and communication. We offer a competitive package of deferred pay and a generous 33% share on all net income that this podcast will likely never generate.